0: I'm Sean Graham, and what's old as news this week is Vancouver's Hogan's Alley. Hogan's Alley was a thriving black and immigrant community in Vancouver's East End in the 1930s. If you're looking at a map of Vancouver today, the area was framed by Main Street in the west, Union Street to the north, and Jackson Avenue to the east, and then Pryor Street to the south. It was broken up through the construction of the Dunsmuir and Georgia viaducts. And the story of how it was broken up has been repeated in cities all across the country where minority and lower income communities are broken up using the justification of growth and development, when in reality, oftentimes it is gentrification, other times it is an explicit effort to disrupt certain communities. And the impact of the dismantling of Hogan's Alley is part of a new historical fiction by Shailene Knight entitled Junie, which follows the title character who is a creative child who's moving about Hogan's Alley with her mother, Maddie, who is a jazz singer with a growing alcohol dependency. Through the course of the book, Junie meets mentors and a girl her own age, and the narrative explores complex issues of race, alcoholism, sexuality, all of which takes place against the backdrop of what's going on in Hogan's Alley. And we don't often do historical fiction. This is the first time we've done it on this version of the show back on the History Slam. Didn't do it too often, but this is an example of historical fiction that I think really uses the historical context to maximum effect at other times. It's just a story set in the past, but this time what Shailene Knight is able to do by highlighting the community aspect of Hogan's alley, the conception of love, which we talk about a lot in our conversation and how that is centered around place really is a very powerful discussion and it permeates across the various themes that emerge in the book, which is not only great, but also relatively short. So it's not a major time commitment to read it. So if you're looking for something quick and thought-provoking, something that will keep your attention, but also won't take you the entire year to read Junie is a wonderful option. I very much enjoyed it and really enjoyed this discussion. So let's get right into my chat with Shailene Knight. All right. And Shailene Knight joins me now. How are you today?
1: I'm doing well. How are you?
0: I'm doing very well. Uh, Looking forward to chatting with you about Junie. Uh, As I said in the intro, uh, a work of historical fiction, and we haven't done historical fiction yet on this version of the show, so before we get into some of the specifics of the book, I, I want to start by talking about the balance in historical fiction because this is something I'm always curious of how authors navigate the need to take historical or to take artistic license in order to tell a story while also having some level of accuracy and being devoted to the historical fact. So. How do you walk that fine line and how do you fit in historical accuracy with the need to tell this fictional story?
1: Mm -hmm. I think this is the perfect first question because this was a really difficult book for me to write, especially when I think about that balance. Uh, It wasn't obvious to me how I was going to, to address both of those things. How am I going to tell a story about a happening, and also think deeply about the aspects or the stories within the history that are missing. So for me, I really wanted to focus on something that is not often found in the archive, something that is not found when we look back, uh, and that is the living and loving and the voices of these people who lived during this time and in this place. So when I figured out that that's what I wanted to do, I knew that I would have to take that artistic license and I would have to really lean into this lens of fiction that I feel uh, the story needed to sit inside of. Uh, So it was a difficult balance, but I really kept my focus on the people I was writing about these characters and how it was important to me to give them back a world that was taken from them but to also give them an opportunity to reimagine what that world could look like
0: that's really powerful because something that comes up frequently and history students are oftentimes cautioned against being too devoted to archives because they're curated Mm -hmm. what is kept is selected and there are communities who either didn't have a lot of written materials for whatever reason or whatever written materials they had were not deemed of value by those Mm -hmm. gatekeepers in the moments and therefore did not survive. So in the case here of Hogan's alley and the community that you're writing about in this particular case, again, as, as someone who is trained very much in line of go get the written material go to the archive go find those traces how do you as a, as an author go about trying to find those voices and then be in a position where you can share them yourself
1: mm-hmm. and this was tough too because i am while well, i am not a historian by any means and this is also my first attempt at fiction so I don't know if that actually made it easier or more difficult because I felt like oh I'm just giving this a try let's see what happens but I think a lot of the stuff the bolts the nuts of the book came from conversations with people who either knew someone who lived in that neighborhood at the time or who was connected to that neighborhood in some way or when I zoom the lens out even further speaking to folks whom understand what it's like to be displaced or what it's like to lose a piece of their community and essentially a piece of themselves what does that feel like and look like so how can i take all of that and compile a story that would ring true for the people who who lived in that neighborhood so it was a lot of shape shifting and and really trying to be inventive in terms of these characters that I was I was building. Because placing them in fiction, you know, it gives me a huge canvas to play with. But that can also bring on uh, a lot of difficulty as well. When you you think about trying to condense that and concentrate that information into something that will read as a story and not just a series of happenings thrown into this container of fiction. So it was a lot of a lot of work and a lot of revising. And I'll say a lot of taking what I've had and just throwing it out the window, right. starting over. <laughs> so that happened quite a few times.
0: Yeah, that's something that, now I've never written fiction, but even in writing history, sometimes you just want like four pages of text, knowing that you're gonna throw it out, but it makes you feel good that it, at least it's on the page and you're not writing, you're not staring at that. Cursor just blinking on a blank page, just kind of making fun of you every time it blinks it's you know it's kind of satisfying to just have exactly. something even if you know it's not great and in in thinking about this story, when you're talking about displacement and communities being displaced, individuals being displaced, if you're looking at a black community in particular the first thing that comes to mind for me is as sort of a contextual thing that this is very much not just a situation that's going on in Vancouver in this case, but you can go all the way to the other side of the country and talk about Africville in Nova Scotia as just another example of minority communities being displaced over the course of the 20th century in Canada. Given that that is a pattern that has happened across the country, was there any notion on your part to look at the broader patterns and incorporate that? Or is this specific to Hogan's Alley?
1: I think it's definitely specific to Hogan's Alley, but I think the inspiration and maybe the desire or the drive to write this story was definitely connected to these outside Mm -hmm. stories of displacement, you know? And I think we're all familiar with some aspect of this, whether it's, it's Africville or it's, you know, even... I think it was Chicago with the Cabrini Green um, housing complex and how, you know, these folks are, are forced out, but there's never really a plan in place to help someone reestablish the sense of living. And that's the part to me that is, is, is fascinating. But interestingly enough in my book, I don't actually cover the displacement itself. I don't cover the destruction of this neighborhood. Uh, And when I said that I threw my project out that first, version of it did include that and it just didn't make sense for me I had to ask myself what is it I'm trying to do here what am I trying to rebirth what am I trying to reimagine and when I came to the idea that it was definitely the voices and the living and loving I knew that I needed to cover a really short amount of time and let the destruction be something that only my main character could predict and see and so we kind of get a sense of that displacement and destruction coming but we never really get to it because in my mind I didn't want to put my characters through that again I almost wanted to again create this new world for them we all know that this thing happened this demolishing of this neighborhood it happened but what if we take the lens from that and put it right inside these people's homes so that's what I tried to do. And I think it definitely, it calls for the writer to think outside of just this specific uh, situation and get all of this, this outside material. But then when it comes down to what I'm actually going to use and how I'm going to shape the story, a lot of that material was just to get me to that point, even though I didn't make it into the book.
0: How do you think of that though, for your... Audience for for someone who's going to read the book because they're going to come to this in all likelihood with that broader contextual mm. situation that you have as the writer you have, but as the the characters themselves that they, they don't have right they don't mm. know necessarily what's going to happen, but you as the writer do, we as the readers do. So how do you try to to frame it in that way so that if we go through and as we read this book, we're we're not just filled with a sense of impending doom of like. Mm -hmm. pay attention characters, like, come on, like, this is how, like, like, like how much do you think of what the audience response is going to be given that they do have that broader context?
1: Mm -hmm. I think about that deeply as well. And I think I'm, I'm as a writer, it's my hope that the readers will lean in to their own curiosity and ask questions. You know, why did she stop here? Why do we not have this? Why is this character making this decision? And hopefully That will lead them to explore either something that happened in their own lives or have conversations with other people and see if that can lead them into that same reimagining. So instead of me saying, here's what happened, here's what you need to feel, and here's the result of that, I want to drop my readers into a lush world. That they can't deny feeling something, they can't deny these vivid colors that are there, and connect so deeply to my characters in that it would bring this level of trust out, it will expose this thread of trust that will then attach itself to the readers and hopefully they will do their own investigative work. So that was my hope. I think for the most part, it is working based on the responses that I've been getting from folks who've read the book. I'm like, oh, okay. But I read a reviewer's uh, response to my book and he mentioned that he, you know, he lived in Vancouver for his whole life. He went back to this neighborhood after reading my book and he took a little walk through what what used to be Hogan's Alley and he could see things that weren't there. Like he could see, you know, colors coming to life and he could hear music in the alleys. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, that's what I wanted this book to do, that reimagining of a place so that we as readers can attach something positive to, you know, what was erased and not just say, well, this was an eyesore. This was a, a neighborhood just riddled with crime and it's something we needed to just get rid of, yeah. you know, so I really wanted to replace that narrative with something different.
0: Well, that's interesting in the sense of what makes place, right? Like, is it the buildings? Is it uh, what's left over? Is it the culture that's there? Is it the people, the sense of community? Like, how much does the physical location shape what the community is? And some people would argue that if you could pick up the, the place in its entirety and move it somewhere else, the community could thrive course i don't that's never really been done because when these communities communities are broken up they're broken up and every part of the community is broken up and like the the people are separated they're not living in the same uh, distance from each other so all that sort of gets separated but it it strikes me as an interesting thought for like as a reader or as a writer too to think of the power of place and and what do we get out of place itself and is this a story you know we mentioned africville before but again in the communities where similar patterns took place how do we try to assess the importance of the physical compared to Mm -hmm. the emotional or the spiritual sense of community
1: Mm -hmm. What a powerful question. And I think I ask myself every day what makes place, but I say, what does it mean to be home or what does it mean to belong? And I think we'll always have an attachment to a physical place because it is familiar. It's what we know. We don't have to think about what corner we're going to turn down. We just know and we expect what we expect to be there. And when it is not, that is jarring. Now we have to relearn what it means to follow in. the the footsteps that we've left behind the day before. We have to relearn all of that. And so for me, what makes place, it definitely connects to the physical buildings, but it's also attached to the self. And so we're often looking at belonging as this thing that happens on the outside. It's very exterior. But if we don't know what it means and what it feels like to belong inside, then how can we build an attachment to a place? So I think, you know, in my book, I'm trying to also work backwards and to get people to to go back to that basic foundational level, Uh, because if we pick up a place and we remove it and it's gone, but you're still physically there and your connections and your community and you understand who you are, all of that is thriving then how much do we remember 100 years from now? Is it that place or is it the connection and the the threads that are forever tethered to that place? Yeah. I don't know. I think that will be different for for everyone.
0: Yeah, and and one of the things that I, I've thought about in the past too is when I'm not at home, say if I'm off on a trip or, or out of town, whatever it is, I'm more aware of where I am, if that makes any sense. Like if I'm just sitting at home, I'm not, thinking, Oh, I'm at home. But if I'm in mm-hmm. sitting in a hotel room, I'm like, Oh, I'm in a hotel room. And I'm like, I'm just more aware of where I am when I'm not at home yes. so that just being unconsciously comfortable uh, mm-hmm. provides a sense of familiarity and comfort that comes along with obviously being around the people you love and and sort of everything that comes with that sense of community as well. And that brings about the thread of love that comes through in this book. And we talked about it a little before that this is something that for you is, is essentially, if if I may, kind of the spine of the book, that love is what brings everything together. And how do you go about I, love is one of the hardest thing, I think, to express uh, in writing that visually it can be done through physical when you're around people in, in a group, right? It's easy to express love, even with the actions, like doing things, right? I guess it depends on what your love language is. I've always found writing love to be difficult. And even when I'm reading stuff about love, uh, it, I, I find it challenging. So for you as as the author here, with this being the, the thread throughout the book, how do you navigate the way in which obviously the characters express love, but again, potentially you as the author and however you approach love.
1: Love is something we're all writing about all the time, whether we realize it or not. And I think when we look at the different kinds of books that are out there in the world, we're all telling the same stories. We're all writing stories about complex family dynamics or mother-daughter relationships or love this that and the other but what really sets a story apart from the one beside it I think is the way in which we engage with language and how we let you know and sometimes we have to break rules as well and that's something I did a lot in this book where I did a lot of telling when I should have been showing because I wanted to highlight the main character, Junie. I wanted to show her introversion and the way she slowed down and the way she noticed everything around her. And that creates a different experience. And the way that my character explores love is through color. She slows down and she notices when something is off, when a color is showing itself to her. And so I used that quite a bit uh, in the book. And I'm often reminded of, you know, again, this, this feeling of safety and how that connects to love and i'm i'm that makes me think of a quote from bell hooks and she says the practice of love offers no place of safety we risk loss hurt pain we risk being acted upon by forces outside our control so it's like we can build love we can talk about it we can protect it we can call it in but the safety that we want from it doesn't come from the practice. So even if I'm writing about love and we're all writing about love, it's never safe. And so because of that, I think we can write it all the time in all these different ways, shapes and forms. And that's something that excites me about literature today for sure.
0: Does it matter or change it at all that there's the element of youth involved? Like is writing about love, again through the the prism of the main character junie and sort of the youthfulness uh that the character has does that change it? does it make it easier does it make it harder or mm-hmm. is is the the age a factor cuz i always think of you know my like my little cousin who's younger than junie in the book but She's just mm. happy and like loves everybody. Like you, you see her and she's yeah. like, Yay, hey. like you know what I mean? Like th- there's that <laughs> exuberance of youthful love that they're just always excited and like hugging everybody and like, oh, their grandparents are here, oh they had an uncle's here, like that kind of thing. Mm. It, it strikes me as that sort of exuberance we kind of lose as adults a little bit, uh, like at least outwardly, um, in public. Uh, like, you don't see two friends frequently at least from across the street, be like, Oh my God, you're here. Yeah. And like, you go and hug, uh, <laughs> like you don't, just don't see that every day, but with, with kids and with, you know, younger people, you see it a little bit more. So in, in that sense, how does Junie's age and her youth play into the the thread there of love?
1: Yeah, this is a wonderful question and, and not one that I've been asked before, which is great. I think, you know, when I was building, And I say building because, I mean, we're writing a story. We're constructing characters. But Junie, to me, was definitely older in her mind than she was, you know. Technically, she she was 13 in the book. But because of the life that she's lived and the hardships that she is just born into, I think that creates very different childhood than, you know, we would expect most children to call their own. And so these these everyday things that help pull this sense of love out of us, Junie didn't experience any of those things. And so she's not hardened, but she's curious and she question, questions things and, and her own relationships with her mother and her friends. These are things that she doesn't have a language for. So she doesn't understand that there's a difference between friendship and love versus romantic love and the love that a mother should give a child. These are all different things, but she's trying to navigate how they're different and why. And so it's interesting in in the book where her best friend has a very different outlook. She has more of that, you know, I love everybody, I want to be seen, everything is fun. But Junie's she, she doesn't play into that narrative at all. And I think writing love through both of these characters really helped elevate the theme quite naturally.
0: Now you mentioned some of the hardships that she goes through, what what hardens her. The story of the nineteen thirties, I'm very curious to ask how you associate, if at all, the realities of what the nineteen thirties was with the depression and the economic hardships mm-hmm. that were, were going on with some of the the challenges that she faces in the book, uh, there's issues with uh, like alcohol dependency, for instance, and certainly we we see in economically depressed, challenging times increased rates of things like alcohol abuse or, or drug abuse, and that a- income insecurity can be a contributing factor factor to some of these mm-hmm. issues. So, for you as the author, how much does that historical context, the reality of what was going on? in the 1930s, influence some of these issues that you're talking about that hardened Junie as a character.
1: Mm-hmm. I think they had a, a huge impact on how she moved in the world, but definitely even on top of that, I would ask the question, and I did ask the question, what does it look and feel like to be young, Black, female, and queer in the 1930s? What does that look like? And what does it look like for, you know, someone like Junie who kind of defies these stereotypes attached to most Black women, you know, being loud and sassy and all these kinds of things that Junie is not. What does it mean for her to exist in a world in that way in this time? And so that's what I'm trying to explore. Um, But I think it's really difficult to take all of that all of those, those really hard things and place them on someone's shoulders and try to predict how far they'll be able to walk with it. So it was an interesting kind of exploring and even watching, you know, films and and seeing how people moved in the 1930s. And what did they do? What did they talk about? uh, What kinds of things were discussed behind closed doors? What was the music like? How did it feel to go out on a Saturday night, you know, and, and, trying to learn as much as I could about that without having it take over the narrative. That was really hard for me. And that's, again, why I had to to toss out the the draft a couple of times because I felt the story I was trying to tell get overshadowed by a lot of, a lot of that. And I wanted to, you know, enter into it with a really light hand, even when we're thinking about, you know, the racial tension that one might feel, how can I, allude to this without having it be the whole book and that balance was difficult as well but you know working with some incredible writers made for an easier ride working with uh, Wade Compton who is you know a Hogan's Alley expert I would say working with writer David Andy as my mentor that was just an incredible privilege and gift so I feel like balance that I wanted is there, but there's always going to be, I think, two readers who want more of one element for sure.
0: Practically though, how do you make it so that it doesn't overpower the story? Because again, this is me as a historian who spent <laughs> the better part of his life in the 1930s. When you look at the Economic realities at that time, they were bad across the board, certainly. But mm-hmm. when you look at black Canadians, when you look at uh, indigenous peoples and Asian Canadians, they were proportionally much worse off. And, you know, first one's fired, last one's hired sort of thing. And and you see the systemic discrimination that existed. It's it's highlighted during mm-hmm. the 1930s and the Depression. So, again, me, and my historian mind would go to ooh, let's talk about that. But that's not what this is about in in the book. So Mm -hmm. how do you prevent those systemic issues that are very clearly highlighted in this decade from overpowering that story?
1: Yeah, I think I have, or I had an advantage when I was writing this story in that I kind of let my poetic brain take over and with poetry we are not given a lot of time to create a sense or create a feeling or create a story we have a little bit of space to do that and so i kind of allowed my my poetic brain to take over the narrative and cut out some of the bits that i didn't want to take over the story because that's hard to do as a writer creating this this balance is really difficult to do so you always have to make sure that you know again what do you want this book to do what is its action and you have to stick to that because i could have been writing four books at once in that first in that first draft yeah. but this is not what that story is i might you know do something totally different down the line but each book is going to call you into a specific purpose and once you know what that is the balance kind of it kind of manages itself if you know what side of the brain to allow to take over
0: Again, this is why historians tend to not write fiction because we're always like, oh, well. we, we don't let that happen. <laughs> a thousand <for> like... pages. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, the, yeah. this wouldn't be four books. This would be one book of 4,000 pages. If, historian, <laughs> if a historian had written it, we wouldn't know where to stop. Uh, now, you, you did mention too, uh, certainly Junie's uh, sexuality or, or queerness is definitely part of this mm-hmm. story. And this is an era, again, me and my historian mind you know, coming off of the 1920s where there is really a sea change in the ways in which uh, women's sexuality was discussed. You have the the flapper movement, for instance, uh, where the idea of women's sexuality being completely repressed starts to be openly challenged within popular culture. But that is a very much heteronormative version of uh, women's sexuality. So, Within that context of here's an era where women's sexuality is starting to be acknowledged as a thing within the popular culture, but not queerness necessarily, how does junie's identity shape the way you tell the story within that aspect of it, and incorporating this discussion of sexuality into an area into an era where queerness and and women's queerness and, and particularly black women's queerness isn't really included in a lot of the the popular culture moments of the the time.
1: Exactly. And I think you know you hit the nail on the head there that this wasn't or you know black females in general were not included in white feminism, even the white feminism of today. The narrative doesn't always call for or include, you know, black women in, in many ways. And so in thinking about that and, and going back to the 1930s, what did I want for Junie? What kind of an environment did I want to build for her? And that's what I thought deeply about. And when we look at how she sees love and how she's so wanting to be able to understand the different layers of it. Uh, including this, this queerness was important to me because it allowed for her to ask herself questions, but it also created a, a longing for a community that would accept and understand what she was going through. And I think we all have parts of ourselves that have maybe been left unexplored or just kind of left untapped and for different reasons. And Junie's sexuality helped me lean into a metaphor for Coming into this sense of home and belonging and place again, those keep coming up. Uh, but it was difficult to think of what it would look like for her, how she would she would move. and so again I, I put on that that fiction license and I allowed my myself to really create an environment for her that I felt that she could potentially thrive in. and so that was important to me not just dropping her off in this complex place that we know existed, but what if? I could create a softer place for her. um, Would that be okay? And so that was something I was, was um, playing with as well in the narrative.
0: How much of that is potentially aspirational on your part? Because one of the things that I've seen written about, at least now this is in a, a male queerness context that the black community isn't the most accepting always of of queerness uh, w- with within the community itself? So, is, is there any sense of aspiration in writing the softer landing for Junie within the context of her queerness?
1: Mm-hmm. When I think about you know black community, I think we have to also recognize that there are a variety of black communities, and inside of these communities there will be different layers of expectations and and the ways in which folks communicate and accept people. It's gonna be different. Uh, And so that's another reason why this was so difficult to do because I definitely didn't want to lead the reader into thinking or understanding that there's this one black community or one black experience that folks need to um, be a part of. But I think also, and I used uh, Junie's mother Maddie to really bring this out what you what can happen is that we society make the assumption that if we put a bunch of maybe black people in a room everyone's going to get along everyone's going to understand each other and it's going to be great that's not often how it works and sometimes a lot of the complex you know, feelings of of not belonging come from within a Black community. That can happen quite a bit where, you know, there's this this desire to belong in a space. And if that pushback or that, that layer of not feeling accepted is highlighted within a community, I think that can create a very different level of damage for the individual versus what it feels like to have that come from outside. And so I thought about that as I was creating, you know, building this this story. And I wanted a, so- a softer landing for Junie, but I also wanted to kind of push back everything and peel back everything and say, let me just put her in the room with this woman and let's see what happens. And for the most part, Hey, they didn't get along, and there was a lot of tension and turmoil in that relationship. And I think that's okay. There's no happy ending for junior though. Right. That's for sure.
0: Yeah, and it's it's true. It's it's one. It's something that, say, in political narratives, you see it all the time where things are separated out. And for mm-hmm. like, white people, it's like, all right, based on religion or urban, rural, or this or that. And then you just see the mm-hmm. the combo, like, oh, here's how black people voted, and you're like, wait a minute that that like there there's like that doesn't represent all the various communities and that's the same too with you know asian canadians uh, indigenous uh, peoples you you see where non white communities are just or non white peoples are just put together as singular communities mm-hmm. uh, which isn't yeah. the case like that's it, it's obviously not true that every black person is going to agree with every other black person like but somehow narratively that happens all the time. And like I don't know how frustrating is that for you as a, a writer to be trying to counter this, this thing that again, and, and I'm putting in the sense of political narratives, but you can watch movies and it's mm-hmm. one black character or two black characters. And if there's more black characters, then it's a quote unquote black movie. And like, I, like, I don't know, just, just going against those narratives. And recognizing the communities within Black Canada and trying to push back against these cultural norms that have been put up by, again, the gatekeepers uh, of people who, frankly, fund a lot of the the content. And if you look at Mm. things like, like, you know, the CBC National Film Board in this country. I I don't know, just as a creator, I I don't really know exactly how to ask the question, uh, but like as a creator, recognizing the reality of Black lives in Canada or or the Black experience in Canada and the diversity within that and what that Mm -hmm. means, just trying to push back against maybe what some individuals in places of power who have control over what gets released potentially, what their expectations are. Are
1: Yes. And this is a really important conversation, I think, especially in publishing right now. What kinds of books are we saying yes to and why? I've heard authors, you know, come to me and say that they've submitted a book and the response was, oh, well, we already have an African book, so we don't need mm-hmm. this one. You know, and responses right. like that are, okay, yeah. so you're telling me there's one experience and because that's been written and told, <laughs> there's no space yeah. anything else. So I think the best way, you know, for us to start, and I say us because it's all of us collectively that, you know, who need to be doing this work, to really think about the types of stories we want to be telling and why, and who are the best people to tell these stories. And can we, and I'm using air quotes, can we saturate a market with these stories? And, you know, we're also making assumptions about who's picking up these books. Right. We're we're saying, well, you know, there's only one particular audience for that, and I don't think they're going to want these stories because that's not going to fit in their mold of what they think a black story should be. And mm-hmm. that's what we really need to start breaking down. But hey, <laughs> I'm hoping that my my book kind of you know adds to that conversation. Right. You know, look at this black female character that we we have. She's she's kind of different.
0: You know? Yeah, yeah, very yeah, very different from anything that I, I had read before. Uh, before coming to this book. So it, it certainly hits on that note and sharing a, a different story, at least from anything that I had read before. And, and part of what makes this particular book different or, or unique, if you will, is is the structure, the shape, and how you put this together. And And why did you go about structuring the book and Certainly, you can talk about it as the, the structure. I don't want to give too much away uh, because, of course, we want people to go get the book and read the book. But mm-hmm. in, in terms of the the way you structured it, what was that process like for you and how did you end up landing on the structure that, that you did?
1: Mm-hmm. And this is something I say in every interview. I say the choices that I have made are like cilantro. And you are going to love it or you are going to hate it. And I really thought about that before I I put the book together in this way because, you know, again, I'm breaking the rules and I've got these chapters that are spliced with these first-person, present-tense vignettes where Junie is slowing down and she's observing the world. And it's meant to showcase her introversion and how slowly she moves in the world. But that, I know, is going to jar certain readers and, you know, Maybe they're going to skip those pages. I don't know. But I thought about that. And the structure for me was so important in that I wanted to give Junie space to work through her ideas and work through what she's doing or to, you know, have a moment to really just reflect on things. But essentially, those little vignettes throughout the book, if you were to take them out separately and read them back to back they actually showcase and highlight Junie's evolution. And it's like, you know, I don't know what you call it when you've got those picture book things and you flip the pages and you can see the characters moving. It's kind of like that. It's like a moving painting inside of the book if you separate the narrative from those two. And I thought that would be really fun. Um, And the folks who really paid attention to that, I'm enjoying the conversations uh, connected to their findings and separating those two pieces.
0: And it's it's something that, yeah, I, I like the flip book analogy to it. That, that, that makes That's a lot of sense. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's each individual thing is its own, each div- individual thing. But yeah, when you see it in its totality, it's something entirely different. And yeah, it's a wonderful analogy. So for anyone who is coming to the book, I would like to ask authors this. Do you have something that you want them to take away from from reading the story from from Junie herself as a, a character or the entirety of the story. Like, is there, I, don't, I hesitate to say something prescriptive, but something that as you release this out into the world, and, and one of the things that I find most powerful about all forms of culture is that you can have whatever intent you want as an author or mm-hmm. as a creator. doesn't mean that that's what the person's going to necessarily take away from right. it, but do you have something that when you talk to somebody who's, who's read the book and they say it and you're like, Oh yeah, that's good. That's what I wanted. Or there's, are are you someone who is just, this is the story, this is the creation and do with it what you will.
1: Mm-hmm. I would say I would want for people to pay attention to the things they ignore. You know, and that could mean communities, that can mean people, that can mean conversations, that can mean anything. But if we slow down enough to really pay attention, what are we going to find in those cracks? You know, what are we going to be able to pick up? And that's essentially what Junie is, the whole book. And what's great is that folks can read it probably in one sitting. And I recommend that folks sit down and read the whole thing. It's not going to take you forever and really just take all of that in and see what happens after see how differently you look at a community or you you look at a space or you look at yourself I don't know but I think it's always great to set that action set what you want a book to do and know what it is because then when you start to hear from your readers and folks start to pick up on that you'll know as an author whether or not your book was successful because of that and you know we're not going to be too weighed down by book sales and all of those those kinds of things that are out of our control
0: for sure yeah and like you say yeah this could it's a one sitting thing like the, the new avatar movie is three hours long you could easily like you could read Junie in three hours like you know <laughs> it's, you, you don't have to go see the james cameron movie which i I don't know if it's any good or not but the, i feel like reading <laughs> Junie is a better use of your three hours so that's my <laughs> endorsement of it so <laughs> again the book is juni chalene if anybody wants to pick up a copy of the book what's the best way for them to do it or to to follow along with all the other great work that you have uh, published already and and I'm sure we'll publish in the future.
1: Yeah, please support your local indie bookstores and either pick it up there or request a copy. And you can always check out my website, ChaleneKnight.com.
0: All right. And we will link to that in the show notes below and with the post associated with this over at Active History. So uh, definitely check it all out. Uh, Shailene Knight, I very much enjoyed this conversation. Thank you for taking the time to join me today.
1: Awesome. Thanks so much. I enjoyed it as well.
0: So there you have it. My chat with Shailene Knight. And I thank her for her time. Again, the book is Junie, a novel. So with that, let's get right into today's historical headline of the week which comes from The Daily Hive and Kenneth Chan on June 15th, 2020, all about a plan to rebuild Vancouver's Hogan's Alley, in which Kenneth Chan notes that the first proposal to rebuild Hogan's Alley came in 2017. And here in the summer of 2020, it was being pushed forward again. There were some delays associated with the onset of COVID-19, but this push, this desire, to rebuild the community, was getting more and more attention. And through the course of the article, there is great explanation of how the community came to be, how it grew, how it became a thriving place where all of its residents could engage and thrive. And even if there were challenges, there's very much a community spirit there. But of course, it goes away as the viaducts are built and the community is displaced. So now in the 21st century, there is a plan, there is an effort to rebuild this community. Over the past couple of years, from what I gather, not too, too much has been done, but the foundations are in place. So if you want to get a sense of the history of Hogan's Alley, what the thread of its growth and then destruction was, as well as what some of the plans are to rebuild it, what this means for the future of Vancouver's Black community, how this could potentially play out in other communities across the country where Black residents were displaced through the course of the 20th century. Hogan's Alley in Vancouver could be an example, if this gets done, of a successful collaboration between local community groups, and the city of Vancouver. Time will tell if this provides a framework for other municipalities, but from what is included here, looks like a wonderful plan and a great start to rebuilding Hogan's Alley. So, today's historical headline of the week the plan to rebuild Vancouver's Hogan's Alley for the Black community, for the Daily Hive, June 15th, 2020. And with that, I will say thank you very much for listening, everybody. If you have not yet, please do subscribe to the show wherever it is. You get your podcast, likes, ratings, comments, all that stuff. Helps other people find the show, keeps us growing. You can always head on over to activehistory.ca. All of our past episodes are there. Plus a great series for Black History Month going on right now. And last Wednesday... For Flag Day, wonderful piece about the history of the Red Ensign and its evolution as a symbol, so highly recommend that. And as always, if you want to let me know what you want to hear in the show, what's old news at gmail.com. So thanks again for listening, everybody. We'll be back with you again next week for more What's Old News.